Hello, and happy Christmas, depending on when you're listening to this. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today for a special Christmas edition of Looks Unfamiliar is Stephen O'Brien, the author of 80s Christmas UK Singles. Or is it 80s UK Christmas Singles? He'll correct me in a minute, I'm sure. But it's a book all about the hits, the misses, and the stuff that was a hit at Christmas that shouldn't have been from the decade of Christmas wrapping by Dizzy Heights. Stephen's come along today to talk about a few favoured festive oddities. So before we go any further, tell us about the book. 80s UK Christmas singles. I think it covers, I think it was 83 Christmas records that meet a particular criteria. Not just Christmas records from 83. Basically, things whereby, you know, original tracks, so things like re releases from Slade and Roy Wood and Wizard wouldn't count because they were originally in the 70s. And generally, it was something that either directly referenced Christmas or was a track that people have come to associate with Christmas. For example, Freiheit... <laughs> I knew that was coming! <laughs> Freiheit, keeping the dream alive. It's got end. nothing to do with Christmas! <laughs> Listen, I only wrote the book, but I think, you know, by virtue of the time of year it was released, mm. and the fact it kind of had quite a bombastic, warm sound, yeah. I guess people have made that connection. So that made it in there as well. What the book does do, it just covers the whole gamut of Christmas songs in the 80s, from novelty songs to really sort of, quite sort of left-field songs to cosy, sentimental Christmas songs as well, and Max Biograves. <laughs> and it was quite interesting for me to, when I was compiling and writing it, is that, one, I kind of thought there would have been more Christmas songs in the 1980s, although I guess 80-odd is, is a good number, but it was just the sheer diversity of that output. And also, there were some tracks I'd never come across before, which were totally baffling. And there was one in particular, which was David Gilmore of Pink Floyd and Nicolette Close of Dream Academy had a hand in as well. Some bizarre kind of stars on 45S medley, but done better. It's not difficult to do a better medley than stars on 45, but speaking of bizarre and inexplicable singles... We're going to go through in order some that you picked out that you want to talk about. The first one's from 1982, and I'm just going to play it. I remember this from the time. I'm not sure it's ever been heard anywhere since, but here we go. With your left leg in, your left leg out. In, in, shake it all about. Do the yucky cucky when you turn around. That's what it's all about. Right, okay, well that was the dulcet tones of, well, we're not sure who exactly, but that was the Snowmen with the Hokey Cokey. So, what was that all about? So we've got this band called the Snowmen, which, as the name would suggest, it was a four-piece novelty act. Four blokes dressed as snowmen. So in terms of, you know, describing what you are, you know, it's a pretty good first attempt. They ended up doing a number of tracks across the early 80s. As you say, because obviously they were dressed up as snowmen, nobody quite knows who they were. What we do know is that you know this track in particular, aside from obviously the, the traditional elements, was written by um, a couple of songwriters and producers, uh, James Kennedy, Martin Kershaw, Nick Portlock and John D. Marks, although possibly John D. Marks was the composer of Hokey Cokey. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> composed that! Apparently so. It was actually released on a record label called Slack Records, 
which is actually seems to be some kind of sub-label of Stiff Records. And I guess this is why this kind of legend has come about, that the, the vocals of the track were done by none other than Ian Jury. It's kind of a sort of a scar-tinged take on Hokey Cokey. Some nice brass in there as well, but a very raspy vocal. You know, not dissimilar for me and Jory, or at least it sounds like somebody doing an impression of me and Jory. Nobody really knows who performed this track. Of course, we understand who wrote it and were involved in the production of the track, but nobody knows, nobody's owned up to being the <laughs> snowmen themselves. But it was always kind of denied that it was Ian Jory. One more common theory that's come about in recent years is that actually it may have been Jonah Louis, mm. but again, that has not been confirmed either. One little interesting fact is that one of Jonah Louis' backing band members, a gentleman called Nigel Dick, who went on to become a video director, pop video director, probably most famously um, he directed Baby One More Time for Britney right, Spears. Right. But he was he claimed to have been in one of the snowman costumes in the top of the pop. I thought you were saying when he's directing the Britney Spears video then. <laughs> well, quite possibly, you know, isn't it? I think it is worth mentioning the video. And mm. any, any of you who haven't seen this... I would urge you to go to YouTube and take a look at it. It's just such a sinister piece of work. You've got the snowmen, the four people in ropey snowmen costumes. But you see them... Screwed up faces as well, haven't they? Yeah, really screwed up faces. They're sort of lurching at the camera. And then it cuts to the snowmen themselves in some kind of sort of housing estate, leading all the kids away (laughs) like like the Pied Piper. it's, It's so sinister. And yet, it was a hit, wasn't it? Because I remember seeing it on Top of the Pops, and I've just looked, it apparently got to number 18. It got to number 18. Well, who was buying it? People who were short things to do at office parties. <laughs> but again, I think this is a trend that comes out, say in the 1980s, people just seem to go a bit mad at Christmas. Yeah. I'll buy any old tat. And whilst it, you know, it has its charms in many ways, but it's it's not something I've been able to repeat and listen, no. to be quite honest with you. And as well, it's not really, I mean, I know the snowmen, it's not really a Christmas single or such, is it? That's the odd thing. Yet, my first thought when I was reminded of existence was thinking, well, you don't see that on the Christmas compilations, do you? So I obviously think of it as a Christmas single, even though it's just a hokey-cokey. Now, in terms of the second single, that was a medley that time, which was called Christmas Party. And this obviously included some original material, but alongside... Obviously, some Christmas standards or seasonal standards like the Conquer song. There's um, no such song. Good King Wenceslas, Orland Zine, and I'm saying the best to last here, Knees of Mother Brown. Oh, that famous <laughs> Christmas song. <laughs> so, again, it's got the old smoky vocals, which mm. may or may not have been Ian Jury or Jonah Louis. Now, there is some self deprecating humour in that second one where they sort of, you know, the chorus shout out, What a Rotten Song. I remember what this now! I didn't think I remembered this, and yeah, I do actually. And again, that was from the that was from pretty much the same team as the first. Did that chart first. as well? That got to number 44. Okay, released some that taste prevailed. On Solid Records, which is a bit of a misnomer. Wasn't was Ian Levine's label? Oh, please let it be. No, it wasn't, no, that was Nightmare Records. <laughs> no, he had a few. I'm sure one of them was he solid. He did have a few. They returned for the final single in 1986, <laughs> Nick Knack Paddywhack. Another season of there. Give a Dog a Bone, again from the same team. But they did have an original festive track on the B-side called Snowman Rapping. Have you ever actually heard Snowman Rapping? Or? No, but I have heard Nick Knack Paddywhack. 
And what's your verdict on that? Just a load of paddy whacking. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm going to guess that, you know, we've had number 18, number 44. Did that get to the top position of didn't? Number 80. That's pretty much didn't, this, isn't it? This time released on Priority Records. No, that there's, there's something possibly illegal about saying that record is anyone's priority. No, that's quite true. Okay, well, I don't think we're really basing the quality part with your next choice. Again, I'm just going to play it and hope none of you turn off. I'm laughing already. Stephen, what was that? That was Jingle Bells Laughing All The Way by an act. And I used, I used <laughs> the term act very loosely called The Hysterics. I think of all the tracks I listened to and researched for this book, this was the one that I just was just the most... It left me dumbfounded. You know, talk about stretching a joke. So anyway, The Hysterics appears to be like, you know, a studio project put together by two producers, who in this case were Larry Robbins and Danny O'Keefe. Not quite sure what else they did, but this was their one and only EP as the Hysterics. Oh, you do surprise me. So the lead track, nominally, was Jingle Bells Laughing All The Way. So this is the only Christmas song on this self-confessed Christmas EP, and described on the sleeve as Saint Nick laughs in tune to Jingle Bells. Why does anyone want that? So you then get just... One minute and 16 seconds of some idiot laughing along to the tune of Jingle Bells. And as I said in the book, never has a listener's patience been tested more. I'm Mm. all for a laugh. I'm all for something a bit off the wall or or whatever. This was just so pointless. (laughs) And it got to number 44. So is it basically the equivalent of what you now get inside those, you know, those battery-operated Santas where you, you switch them on and they laugh jingle bells? It's basically just that, isn't it? It's, it's the precursor of those annoying decorations you get. It's like the chorus of the laughing policeman kind of extended. And so the other four tracks, it was a five-track EP in a similar fashion. So you just get other tracks, which you one track sneezing, one track's hiccups, belching and... Apparently it was performed, the vocals, Tim, no less, were performed by the Just For Laughs players. No, it's that kind of uh, Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles and Steve Steen and all those people who travel for Just For Laughs from the Montreal Comedy Festival. I hope so. I really hope so. But would you, would you even credit yourself under a nom de plume on this record? And I suppose you're just firing it into the sun. Back in those days, and this was, you know, this was, this was still 1981. In terms of getting anywhere in the charts, you, you had to shift quite a lot of records. So obviously, n- number 80 is no great shakes for most of the members of the public, but they would have sold at least a few thousand copies of this track. But again, it comes back to what you said before with the snowmen, Tim. Who would buy this? I don't know. I actually don't know. <laughs> you know, the age that I was at at that point, you know, I liked the Baron Knights. I liked, you know, even a couple of years later, I bought Star Trek in. I wasn't above liking novelty things, but I remember thinking about things like, I don't remember this from the time, but things like it and the snowmen and so on. You know, I had oh. a quality threshold even <laughs> even as a kid who liked rubbish. 
So who did buy it? I don't understand. Because the thing is, obviously, we just had a bit of a pop at the snowmen. Mm. But, you know, whilst it's cleaning, obviously, records, and it has a certain charm about it, especially compared to mm. the hysterics, yeah. where it, I obviously talked about the snowmen as almost being pointless. This is just pointless for me. And the worst thing is the hysterics would have been a great name for you, know, like a sixties garage band, oh, you know, like, with the song about falling down a black hole or something. But, but it comes back to what we said before: is that, and it happens to this day, is that people who roll out any old tat at Christmas, yeah, and unfortunately, there are always people who will go and buy that tat. And it's not about me being snobby. This just is beyond the pale for me. I'm sorry. Well, I can't disagree with you there, but for your next choice, it's actually something quite well-known, but we decided we were going to talk about it anyway, so I sound, like I said, quite well-known there, which possibly a good clue to who it is. Go on, go on, boys. Hello. You the new butler? <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um, oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come yes. in. I'm to do. Come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Uh... Oh, you're not the uh, poor relation from America, right? <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. What kind of singing? Well, mostly the contemporary stuff. Do you, uh, do you like modern music? Oh, I think it's marvellous. OK, well, there's no mistaking that. David Bowie and Bing Crosby with Peace on Earth show Little Drummer Boy. So, Stephen, why are we talking about this? Obviously, Tim, I know you're a huge Bowie fan, and this is a record, and it's certainly a performance you and I have talked about many times before. I still find it breathtaking. You know, so obviously, the actual record, so to speak, has become perennial favourites at this time Mm. of year. You've got two legends, actually, really, musical legends, really. I know that sounds a bit sort of raise your one pat answer, calling them legends, but they are. It's a well-done record, a well-done piece of music, a well-done recording. But for me, the reason why I wanted to talk about it today is if we go back to the the TV special, Mm. the Bing Crosby TV special that this was taken from, the preamble before David Barry and Bing Crosby start singing is probably the most stilted conversation I've ever sort of witnessed or experienced since Ken Bruce and Jimmy Young's handovers on Major (laughs) 2 where they they clearly didn't like each other. I'm interested in your take on this one, Tim. Well, I'm a great lover, as anyone who knows me knows, of the the odder corners of Bowie's catalogue. I mean, famously, I genuinely... I, I won't say it's quantifiably better than what came later, but I genuinely personally prefer the 60s stuff and everything up to Man Who Sold the World yeah. to what came later. That is my absolute favourite. I love Tim Machine. I don't care who knows that. I like the Labyrinth soundtrack. I really love this anyway, just for the oddness of it. I mean, I love the fact that at the moment, you know, there's contention about so much stuff that's been missed off the box sets, like, you know, the entire DRAM album and singles aren't on there, Bombers from the Hunky Dory era's missing. It took me a few takes to say <laughs> that. Remains to be seen whether Tim Machine will be on there. There's a track from Never Let Me Down that's been omitted. But Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy has pride of place on the extras disc <laughs> without boxing. I think that's brilliant. But I think it's a really well done piece of music anyway. It's much better than it has any right to be. Bowie was in his possibly his darkest phase musically then, excepting possibly 
the early to mid nineties, you know, the sort of Buddha of Suburbia outside era. But you know, it's in the middle of the, the Berlin period. Bing Crosby doesn't seem like he was quite on the planet. It shouldn't be a combination of words, but it really, really does. And I love the Peace on Earth counter melody as well. That supposedly, yeah, I think this is one of those slightly exaggerated stories, but supposedly it came about because Bowie hated Little Drummer Boy, the song. I don't know, it might have been because there was a... Was it Nina and Frederick who did a single version of that in the early 60s? No, that was around the time he was, you know, trying to make his mark, and I wouldn't be surprised if he thought, oh, why is there rubbish like this in the charts? And I can't <laughs> even get played on Radio Luxembourg. But supposedly they wrote it because he said, I won't sing Little Drummer Boy. Although he does actually yeah. sing bits of yeah. it. That's the bit people omit from their evaluation of it. No, but... You're quite right. Obviously, you know, Little Drummer Boy sort of dates back to 1941. Mm. And as you say, Tim, there was obviously this Peace on Earth counterpart was sort of written um, actually by the writers of the Bing Crosby TV special. It was actually called Merry Oldie Christmas yes, TV was. Special. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Barry, David Barry sort of agreed to take part in the show on the sole basis that his mother was a fan of Bing Crosby. And the plan was, as you allude to, is that they would just perform Little Drummer Boy. Barry does, did, 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 did speak for himself, <laughs> did dislike the song, and then that's why this counterpart was written. Now, I think, as you say to me, it's quite effective. And given the, the disparity of the voices, they actually work well yeah. in unison. It's a really evocative recording and performance, yeah. I think. Well, when Bing says, I played my best for him, he really means yeah. that. He really goes for that line, doesn't he? I mean, I, I still have to come back to the, the little preamble <laughs> when there's a knock on the door or the doorbell rings. I can't remember which, forgive me. And obviously, Barry's stood there sort of like, you know, in the snow. The, the conversation just, it, it's like something from like a, a 60s spy film. Yeah. Like, like each of them are even having a conversation. They just give him code phrases to each other. It's really bizarre. It's like the pre-credits bit of an ITC serial, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It is, isn't it? and obviously, doesn't he make a comment at the end? Do you want Bing Crosby make a comment at the end when... It's a like, pretty thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you can just hear it on the fade, on the single. <laughs> and I like what... I was going back to the, the, the conversation when he welcomes Barry into the house <laughs> and he says, let's sing a song. It's almost like, accent-wise, they react to each other. Bing Crosby becomes more sort of um, cherry pie American. And then that makes David Barry even more clipped English yeah. than he is normally. And it just kind of keeps it going. It's that weird thing that you get. I've always called it the Davy Jones voice. Where you get, you know, people whose natural accent is British. And then they go and work in America. And they talk in that weird, effective way. Like that. It just doesn't, sound, it doesn't even sound like an American trying to do an English voice. It just sounds... Oh, you get like Daphne from Fra- Oh, I can't oh. do Daphne from Fra- Oh, forget that bit. Move on. <laughs> Keep that in. Keep that in. <laughs> so far, going through, in terms of the selection we're talking about today, so far, I think yeah, that's my favourite. Mm. It hasn't had much competition with the snowmen no. and the stoves. It's a favourite of mine as well. I think it is quite evocative, you know, and mm. I think, you know, even aside from my fascination with the, the, the TV show clip, I do think it is a good Christmas standard. Yeah. And for your next choice, we're moving on to something which I wonder if it might have been inspired by that preamble, in fact. Let's have a listen, see if you recognise these voices. Oh, listen to that, Arthur. That's your actual bow bells. God bless you, Yeah, and listen to that. It's a disgrace on a public thoroughfare. They ought to be reported to the Noise Abasement Society. 
God's sake, Arthur, it's Christmas, isn't it? A time of goodwill. Time to make your will, you mean? We've only just finished with £1.50 for the guy, mister. Used to be a penny in my day. Yeah, but Queen Victoria's dead, isn't she? No, I suppose it's going to be GBH of the year old from Carol Singers. Oh, come on, Arthur, cheer up, will you? Gordon Bennett. It's tough and it's lonely in top management. Oh, don't give me no earache. You don't even pay your rent. I've got a lock-up with no lock on and it's snowing outside. If you don't get her a present soon, there'd be nowhere to hide. I've got a lovely furry coat. OK, well, there's no mistake in Dennis Waterman and George Cole there. Who apparently co-wrote this with Gustav Holt, which is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Stephen, tell us about this, please. OK. This is What Are We Gonna Get Hair Indoors? And this is performed by Dennis Waterman and George Cole. Obviously, at that time, best known for their, their sort of double act, I guess, on the TV show Minder. So this came on in 1983. You know, Minder was probably at its peak at this point in time. This is before Gary Webster joined the cast anyway. So this is one of these bizarre things, TV tie-in. Somebody somewhere has thought, Minder's doing well on the telly, isn't it? Then why do we get them to do a Christmas record? It's quite clear, anybody who watches Minder, even now, the two actors have a really good rapport. Even if you mm. set aside the writing and the characters, you could tell that there's a really good rapport between these two performers and a mutual respect and, and good performances. You know, and this comes over actually in the record, um, <laughs> which is it is quite a bizarre record. As, as you say, Tim, it was written by the two actors and Gustav <laughs> <laughs> You know, that would have been a, a good issue in the recording studio, wouldn't it, I think? Oh, Gustav Holst did always write the theme tune, <laughs> sing the theme tune. Especially for the Quatermass experiment. Boom! <laughs> so in terms of the title then, what are we going to get here indoors? If anybody who's, who's actually had seen Minds will remember that Arthur Daly was always referred to his wife as Air indoors. Air indoors was never seen in that kind of no, one yeah. of the more effective jokes of the, of the series. So clearly what this record is about, seasonal time, is that basically for, for Terry, <laughs> Terry McCann and Arthur Daly having a convo about what Arthur should buy his wife for Christmas. <laughs> so generally speaking is that, you know, here's a spoken word arguing. So the verses are spoken or argued, if you like. And then you get some kind of nominal attempt at singing in the so-called chorus. <laughs> Although, God bless George Cole. His vocals sound like he's about to fall off a jetty <laughs> with a little wobble. And that's what makes it, that that's the sole reason, mm. Tim, I've picked this record because there's just that thing where he goes, What are we going to It's just that wobble in his voice that just creases me up every time I hear it. So the, the whole spit comes in because the musical backing sort of incorporates in the bleak midwinter. But you know what? As much as I laugh about it, you know, it's not the greatest record in the mm. world, but it's quite amusing in its own way. And I think it does capture the characters and the actors quite well. Interesting enough, the record was produced by a former actor turned record producer called Christopher Neal. Oh, yeah. Who would go on. I think he was in um, Adventures of a... Remember that series of films? Advent... Was Adventures of a Taxi Driver. Yes. Which Barry yeah. Evans in it. Adventures of a Plumber's Mate was yeah. the other one. Yeah. yeah, the other one. And he, Christopher Neal, from what I remember, was the lead in that. Yeah. But then he obviously went into record production. And he ended up working on things like, you know, um, think, I think he produced Think Twice by Celine Dion. And he worked with Cher and Michael mm. and the Mechanics and, and, and others as well. 
it's quite interesting to see how his career yeah. developed from producing this record because I think this was one of his early productions. It's worth a little listen. It's quite funny. You haven't listened to any very George Cole <laughs> warbler's <laughs> little what are we going to get here indoors bit. The Top of the Pops performance. Well, I was going to say, that's well. all I remember about it from the time I was sitting on Top of the Pops and they're both looking like they'd rather be somewhere yeah. else. Like they thought this was going to be great with me on Top of the Pops and they'd gone on and thought, hang on. We've made a real mistake here. About twenty seconds in, <laughs> they just sort of—they don't do much. They just sort of stand there and mind to it, and they don't mind that well either, do they? I know. And to be honest, like twenty years later or seven, mm. no, twenty years later, I was—I was hoping for um, George Cole to do a single with Kevin <laughs> McNally based on the TV sitcom Dad. Well, it's funny you should say that because years ago, in something we did on. God, this was when YouTube first started. This must have been about 2005, 2006. Myself and Daryl McLean has been on Lots and Familiar previously. There was a kind of spoof Top 40 rundown. One of the entries was Dad Rap by George Cole, which is a sensitive spin-off single from, from Dad. But people still ask if that was real. That and the Nightingale sang in Barclay Square by Robert Lindsay and the Nightingales, bracket Stephen TV's Nightingales. People, I found people Googling for that. It was, it was a joke. But I will just say about this, that, you know, the joke about Dennis Waterman now, I mean, yeah, we, we said it earlier, when people mention him, everyone says, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. That obscures the fact that the Minder theme, it's a brilliant song. Yeah. I'd be happy if I'd written that. Yeah. I mean, I can't say the same for On The Up, but, you know. <laughs> Although, apparently, he didn't actually write that, did he? But he just sang it. Oh, right, though. Didn't he write that one? Isn't there, wasn't there a comic relief or something sketch with Little Britain where he came on and he confronted them? I think they said something like they said, And On The Up! And he said, no, I just sang that one. <laughs> I still hope, I still wish there was a vocal version of the Sweeney theme yeah. with Waterman going, the Sweeney, the Sweeney. <laughs> Does it go la 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 la? Da 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 da, that's even better. Okay, well, for your next choice, somebody who I could well imagine probably did do the Sweeney theme singing the Sweeney, the Sweeney at some point. This is somebody who I'm a huge fan of and I'm very fond of this, so I'm really glad you've chosen it. Anyway, here it is. mistaking who that was. That's Frank Sidebottom with Oh Blimey It's Christmas. A lot of people probably are aged Tim. They're quite fond of Frank Sidebottom because of, you know certainly in the mid 80s he was quite a constant presence on children's TV and yeah. obviously heavily featured in Unk comic. Frank released a lot of records through his career and this was uh, Frank's Christmas single for 1985. For those of you that don't know I'm, I'm sure all the, everybody listening to this knows the story but um Frank Sidebottom was the paper mache headed alter ego of a comedian, Chris Civi, um, no longer with us, unfortunately. But I always loved Frank Sidebottom. I used mm-hmm. to get on comic as well. I loved it in there. It was just such a commanding physical presence and such a quite an otherworldly presence yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds a bit pat, but mm. when I was watching, you did feel you kind of went into another world. You yeah, kind yeah. of brought into the Frank Sidebottom mm. or the Frank Sidebottom bubble. And I always remember being sort of impressed with his little nods to like Captain Scarlet and yeah, Jerry Anderson yeah. stuff as well. So that was another resonance for me. 
Did you know he once covered, you know, the episode of Stingray with the pop singer in where he sings, I've got something to shout about? Frank did the cover oh, of right, that. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. I just thought you were going to say he did a cover of Parker Well Done. <laughs> he probably <laughs> did, actually. So anyway, so Oblime is Christmas, and obviously Oblime was probably something he said quite a lot. <laughs> it was an initial track written by Sivvy, but it did incorporate elements of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Good King Wenceslas. You know, it's very much in his usual style. Quite a sparse, simple backing, and obviously Frank's just delivering a load of wry sides <laughs> all the way through. And I always like the thing, you know, there's a, there's a reference there, and this is in the book actually, where he, he, Frank says he hasn't done his Christmas shopping yet because the social have stopped my dole. There's this, this a really nice little, clever little a couple of later on where he, he actually goes on to state that he thinks Christmas is better than Easter and mm. goes on to say, and I'm no April fool. <laughs> and I just think. It's beautiful. It's it's poetic. I love that. So I really do. I love this track, and it's, I mean, it got to a uh, number eighty-seven. So mm. obviously, I don't know what the airplay was like at the time, what the coverage was. I get the sense it's not very well known, and that's one of the good things about this book is that even mm. if only five people read it, then there's five people who may not be aware of this and other similar tracks. It is really catchy, it's really amusing. It's quite interesting because the handwritten note from Frank on the sleeve explains that the A side, which is actually called the North Pole side, was for the UK. <laughs> so very seasonal, very Christmas. And the B side actually, which is called the South Pole side, kind of catered for Australia. <laughs> had a medley called Christmas in Australia. Had a medley of Sun Arise, Tiny Kangaroo Down Sports. <laughs> that isn't that sounding very good now, <laughs> is it? Not yeah. really. Walting Matilda, Skippy... And my kangaroo won't come back. And then there's two other tracks, In the Summertime and Old Lang Zine as well. In the Summertime. So, and they're all worth a listen as well. You know, obviously, unfortunately, there's some elements of that medley. Yeah. Um, have fallen out of favour now. But if you put that to one side, yeah. the, the, the tracks of that, the, of that single are all worth a listen. But it's interesting that you say, you know, you asked what was the airplay like at the time. That I remember, it was still quite a sort of culty underground thing. And I remember mainly him being played by Janice Long and John Peel around 85. Because I know, I remember the first time I saw Frank Sidebottom was, do you remember there was a, in earlier in 1985, there was a ITV Saturday morning show called TX, presented by Tony yes. Slattery. Yeah, I remember Where that. we'd been, like my family had been to do the weekly shop. And we were a bit later than usual. We got it in time for the end credits to TX, and I saw Tony Slattery dancing with this strange, big-headed character, and I just thought, what the hell is that? And then Smash Hits the next week. It was the post-Live Aid issue, and they had an interview with Frank Sidebottom in bits. They said, how come you weren't in Live Aid? And he said, (laughs) oh, well, I did learn I am the world, because there was only one of me, but they didn't want me to do it. But it, yeah, that's that's about six months before the single came out. So yeah, I think okay. it was still quite a, not quite a best kept secret, but still not very widely known. I think some of it is, and I reference this in the book. I think Frank Sidebottom was and possibly still is quite a polarizing figure. Yeah, one yeah. of those things is you either you get it and you love him, yeah, or he's just totally mystifying and you yeah. don't get him. And I suspect that's probably the thing that why he never kind of quite yeah, broke yeah. through. Although he, he was here everywhere at the time, yeah. he never really made that massive leap through to the, the success he deserved, yeah. actually. Well, I, I still... I mean, this shows how polarising it is, that I still 
laugh when I think of I went to see him in around 1990 I think <laughs> the the show was called The Timperley Lectures in Liverpool <laughs> I just love the pomposity of that I still I just have to think of that you can see now to burst out laughing I'm sure a lot of people if you said to them would say what's so funny about that and yeah I can't explain what's so funny about that but it's to me that's one of the funniest things <laughs> Okay, well, for your next choice, moving in, let's just say completely the other direction. I'm not going to attempt the link here. Let's just have it. Before I explain this or talk about this record or even introduce it, I have to point out that I've spared everybody the pain of covering Boris Gardner's 1986 Christmas single. Hang on, there was one. There was a record after your Everything to Me. Yeah, Boris. Oh my God. I've blanked this from my memory. Yeah. The meaning of Christmas, Tim. The meaning of Christmas meaning is no Boris <laughs> So this was actually, again, this was written by Boris himself. And <laughs> it's quite ponderous, this one, because <laughs> he takes it upon himself to explain the meaning of Christmas by redefining the word Christmas as an acronym. So he breaks it down letter by letter. So C is for Christmas, which it's kind of it's some kind of infinite loop. It's H for Christmas, R is for Christmas, I is for Christmas. It's like C is for Christmas. C, yeah. H is for happiness. R is to respect. Christmas, happiness, respect. Okay. Exactly. You know, I can't remember what the other ones were. And you know what? You know, if you if you find a buzzer, then. It's a nice enough track. And yeah, he has quite a nice soothing tone, but I think my main issue with Boris's oeuvre at that time, mm. the 1906 classic era <laughs> of Forrest Gardner, it's the production of the record, the production arrangement of the records. It just comes across as quite cheap. And one yeah. wonders that with a more robust arrangement, you know, mm. I don't think, think I'd ever like, I want to wake up with you, but I just mm. think it's under it's undercooked a bit, really. It's just a keyboard left on autoplay, and it he just bit, like yeah. reads out a greeting card over the top. I it think. is, and it's a bit like this one. So, can I just say the true meaning of Christmas in 1986? was not getting hits five or now eight because they both had Boris Gardner on. <laughs> and I still can't work out how that happened because I thought there were different labels and exclusive deals with each series. Yeah. So what vindictive person decided to bend the rules for Boris so he's on both? At least this single, I, I presume the other ones, were released on review records, R-E-V-U-E. Somebody should have reviewed yeah. the decision to release <laughs> I, I, them. Well, dear listener, despite my best attempts to just... Briefly say, I'd spared you the pain of Boris Gardner. We've just spent three or four minutes talking about said record. I do apologise. But getting back to the matter in hand. DMC. I love this. 
what what strikes me on this one is is that obviously you know mid nineteen eighties still kind of the formative years of, of rap and mm. this kind of view and there is this kind of perception which isn't necessarily true of how serious and earnest hip hop and rap acts were mm. and this kind of turns it on its head because it's almost amazing that an act like Run DMC would do a Christmas track for one thing but a kind of a Christmas track with sort of quite a warm. Yeah, heartfelt message, but it's just so endearing. This, you know, mm. I, I haven't got a bad word to say about this one. It's basically a Yuletide tale where they they spot Santa and his reindeer in the park in Hollis <laughs> Avenue, <laughs> as, yeah, as most of us do on you know, this time of year. They find Santa's wallet containing a million dollars, Tim. But before they can return it to Santa, they're told that the money is for them. It's just really good. Got in the video as well. It's just it's such a fun thing. It's filmed mm. on videotape rather than film. Yeah. And the whole thing is just so endearing. You, know, I'm not going to sit here and knock it. You know, it, it's got a really good, robust hip-hop beat, and some nice guitars, and then and the nice brass as well. It got to number 56 mm. on original release. I think in recent years it has started to yeah. become a bit more, a bit better known. Well, it's in Die Hard, isn't oh, it? Oh, right. Which I think okay. uh, right. helped. But I think... Part of the reason it only got to number 56 was it was on the back of there being that weird thing where there was that weird fabricated tabloid story about the Beastie Boys laughing at children in wheelchairs, which, you know, didn't... You only have to look at the Beastie Boys who spent you know most of their career mouthing off about, you know, free Tibet, guaranteeing they'd have no record sales in China. So they weren't the sort of people that would, you know mock disabled children but there was because they were so closely associated with run dmc they were kind of seen as the you know there always has to be a pop villain you know like it'd be frankie goes to hollywood just before that yeah or marilyn manson later and so they were coming to murder us in our beds with their records beastie boys by association run dmc were like that for a bit i mean i remember there was some when there was something on the news about that scandal on the news beat on radio one simon bates went Right, well, I'm still playing them and playing No Sleep Till Brooklyn, you know. Like, but the, it was kind of on the. I think they're taking the knock from that, but also. But the other thing is, that it was actually done for an AM Records sort of compilation of all their artists called A Very Special Christmas, which was mostly full of soft rockers doing awful versions of, you know, Christmas standards. And in the middle, you've got this. Which is just mind blowing, you know, because they'd taken it seriously and, like, you know, I don't know who else was on there, Sting, I think, you know, hadn't, you know, they were just being like pompous and boring. But it came out to promote that album and it got released with basically the cover of the album as the cover of the single, which was a kind of line drawing of Mary and Jesus with the star in the background. It should have had Run DMC holding out tinsel or whatever, you know, yeah. that, it would have been top 10 if that had happened. I'm convinced of that. And I think if people aren't necessarily big fans of rap or hip-hop, it's a very accessible track. Mm. And for me, it never fails to put a smile on my yeah. face. Well, uh, my favourite memory of it is when Lee and Herring were DJs on Radio 1, when they did a Christmas show, they got told that they had to play one Christmas song per half hour. So Stu played No Christmas with John Keys by The Fall. <laughs> Rich played this. Like, <laughs> probably not what like was expected when they were asked that, but... I love, I mean, you know, I'm very big on early hip-hop anyway, but Run DMC in particular, I think kind of, people only remember Walk This Way now, but they did yeah. a lot of really funny, really yeah. pointed records. It was a lot more, I mean, it was, there was a different kind of politics in, you know, Grandmaster Flash, even NWA was different to how rap became, you know, it was more 
They're making more general social points. Run DMC did a lot of that as well, you know. I mean, it's like that, which is the other one that people probably know that. You know, as lines like next time someone's teaching, why don't you get taught? And like the Pope eating out of a garbage can. You know, it's people have this idea that it was all just bragging about how expensive your trainers were, and it wasn't at all. And like you say, there were a lot of jokes as well. And do you know what is samples, by the way, Christmas in Hollis? I don't. Backdoor Santa by Clarence Carter, which is one of the, <laughs> one of the filthiest songs ever yeah. written. So I like the idea that they sneak that in as well. Fair play. <laughs> God bless him. Right. I don't think we can really accuse your next choice of filth, but I will call it garbage. So <laughs> let's hear a bit of it. <laughs> Holly trees, mistletoe, carols sung by a choir. You and me, all alone, sat by the fire. Let's have an old-fashioned Christmas, like it used to be. Round the Christmas tree, we'll have an old Right, you're probably thinking, I know those voices, but I can't pinpoint them. That is Madge Harold from Neighbours. What was going on there? Quite right, that was Old Fashioned Christmas, performed by Anne Charleston and Ian Smith. Madge Harold from Neighbours, respectively. It, it just, it's just baffling. This was Christmas 1989. Clearly, you know, the preceding sort of year or two, we'd obviously... Callie Minogue and Jason Donovan had achieved their huge success. Singing careers, spinning out of neighbours. Even earlier in 1989, Stephen Dennis. And a lot of people at that time were saying, that's one neighbours act too far. Yes. Well, stick around, (laughs) folks. Because what then, what happened, Christmas 1989 is that Somebody, and in fact, it was Jive Records actually. Somebody, I've got so Jive Records, who at that point were just about to release Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses. Yeah, <laughs> Jive Records somehow got into the, the head to say, Well, actually, Neighbours is really popular. Why don't we do a record with Imagine Harold? And that's their big mistake. You could argue that if they'd done a record with Imagine Harold, almost yeah. along the lines of what they're going to get air indoors, you know, George Cole, mm. if they'd done something along those way in character. That might have had a more realistic chance of catching on because it ties into the whole neighbours thing more closely. Because let's not, let's not forget, you know, Anne Charles and Ian Smith were probably in the at least in the forties. Mm. I point. think that might be being generous, actually. <laughs> so forties, fifties, for example. <laughs> and given that most of the viewership, the large amount of mm. viewership, although most the teenage young people, so you can sort of see why mm. Jason Kylie and whatever, you know, would have that success. But what 14-year-old is going to go out and buy a record by the two actors who play Madge and Harold? Yeah. And we haven't even got to the, the record itself <laughs> yet. So this, this record, supposedly seasonal, called Old Fashioned Christmas. This was written by a musician called Phil Hampson, and he produced it with Brendan Leon. Sorry, guys, I, you probably don't want me to mention your <laughs> name, but I've mentioned it. What's really bizarre about this one, Tim, is that aside from... If, the old little sleigh bell is percussion at the start of the record. 
and some chimes at the end. It's not, it doesn't sound very Christmas at all. Does it sound old-fashioned? It does sound very old-fashioned. <laughs> now, in fairness, you know, I can't even believe we've talked about this rapper. But anyhow, somebody's got it. Fair play to Ian Smith. He you know, gives you some gusto on this record. He has quite a sort of, you know, resonant voice. But Anne Charles and bless her. She just can't sing for toffee. And it's kind of a, a snowman-esque rasp. And so, and, and this is the other problem with the record is, aside of the fact the record exists, it's this disparity between Ian Smith being quite a good singer and Anne Charleston just kind of phoning it in. And it's just, it's the oddest mishmash you ever, it's not a particularly strong song. In terms of the arrangements and stuff, not my cup of tea, but it's it's well mm. done so far. In terms of the arrangements and the production of the record, they've done a, a fair job. But it just brings me back to, you know, the fact that these tapes were delivered to Jive Records and they've still released it. <laughs> and it, it's just... Oh. And just to ram the whole exercise home. So remember, it's called Old Fashioned Christmas. Mm. And you can Google image this if you want, if you're really that bored. But the cover art, it's a sepia photograph of the two actors. And they frame this horrible green marble effect. <laughs> Aside from possibly being the worst record of the 1980s, it's the worst cover art ever in the whole of Christendom. It's terrible. And then there was a gateful version to of this. Please tell me it didn't have two singles in it. No, it was just gateful with a kind of a Christmas wishes message. And then one of those faux kind of present tags where it says to and from. You know, just in case you wanted to give it to somebody as a present. It's just a total misjudgment of it. It's somebody looking at something and thinking that is popular, ergo anything to do with it will be popular. Rather than looking at the reasons why. I mean, let's be honest about this. The reason I would say the majority of people watch Neighbours and Home and Away was because they were young and they fancied people on it. I watched Home and Away for Rebecca Romaloglu. I watched Neighbours for Melissa Bell. I might have pretended otherwise at the time, but that's the absolute truth. Not many of the target audience were watching to see the latest comedy witterings which you imagine Harold have convinced of that. You know, they probably probably thought of, like, you know, Jim Robinson is a bit over the hill. (laughs) It might have been occasionally... You know, there might have been one or two viewers who thought they were quite good. I suppose he's remember most people hating Harold at first, because he was quite a, an authoritarian patrician figure, wasn't he? That had very firm ideas on how young girls should dress, and you know, which obviously <laughs> when I was watching that wasn't what I wanted at all. But, you, right, but you, did have, you did have firm ideas about how young girls should dress, but you were 14 at the time. <laughs> well, and I I'm glad you added that bit, yes. <laughs> I thought it was important in case yeah. you left it in. But wasn't there a scene, wasn't there an episode, correct me on this one, wasn't there something where Harold went round to see Mrs Mangle and hadn't somebody spikes the drinks or something and they ended up getting sloshed? Or is, this some, is this some kind of I don't remember that. Some... I remember when Jim Robinson had a hallucinogenic fungus and hallucinated the pig, which is brilliant. <laughs> You've really got me down myself now. And I'm thinking, it's probably true. I'm just thinking, <laughs> I'm sure there was an episode where there was two. Somebody played a trick on them or something. If not, and I've made that up, I'm getting quite worried now. <laughs> but even that image isn't as bad as this record. I'd advise mm. you to check out the cover art <laughs> because that's amazing itself. I'd probably say skip the record though. Well, this was, I mean, this was around the time when, you know, obviously, Neighbours was quite a big thing for her. Uh, because you might remember 
this is when I had that jump at the Erinsborough High jump. <laughs> a relative of bought me and I got forced to wear it. Was same, it was the same as the school jumpers in Neighbours. And I kept expecting to be collared by old Muir. But it was the headmaster. <laughs> but everyone read people would say, you'll go to school in Neighbours. <laughs> Shame <laughs> of it. <laughs> and also, because uh, this was 1989, wasn't it? When, yes. Uh, one of their neighbours' cohorts had the Christmas single out. Uh, it was also the year, by the way, you forgot about this, that you gave me your duplicate copy of Robin the Sheer What the Hounds of Lucifer for Christmas, which is over there. Did I? <laughs> yes. I don't even know I had it. He's telling you we even have one anymore. <laughs> I've probably still got one in the box somewhere. I don't know if I'm having two. Yeah, well, you don't know. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Jason... Be thankful I didn't give you a copy of Old Fashioned Christmas with two Tim. <laughs> From Stephen, Merry Christmas, you get. <laughs> It'd be worth minus eight pounds on eBay. But yeah, Jason Donovan had a sort of Christmas single out that year, but Jason and Kylie were both on your last choice, which I'm willing to wager that possibly most people haven't heard this from that day to this. <laughs> Voices, but why isn't Band Aid 2 remembered? Quite obvious to most listeners that was a stockade from Waterman Production again, 1989. The reason this came about apparently is that Bob Geldof had been asked if the original Band Aid record could be re released again in 1989, and I think it was re released in 85, wasn't it? Mm. The original after 84. Now, there's debate about that because I'm convinced there was. In some capacity, there was a different mix of it done by was Paul Castle. Wasn't it? Or Trevor Horn. Right, okay. But I think by 1989, I think Geldof had thought, well, it's been released once before and didn't really do much compared to the mm. first time. How can I make a splash? I think he thought, well, let's do a new version. And quite obviously, 1989 was stocking Waterman's Imperial phase. It was their most successful year. Yeah, I think they had six number ones that year. Two or three of those were consecutive number ones. So it was quite clearly a no-brainer for Geldof to go to Pete Waterman and ask if they do the record, and they did. As you say, Tim, and this kind of harks back a bit to the last Lux and Familiar we did when I hosted and you were the guest, mm. and we talked about the Nick Drake track. Yes. That the original had sort of fallen into obscurity because there was a, a reimagined version with yeah. added strings by there Robert There certainly Kirby. is. And I remember at the time we talked about the fact is, by all means, create a new version, but don't excise the original from history. My view is similar to this one. Now, anybody who sort of is at all vaguely familiar with me and my stuff online, I am a big Stocking Waterman fan. I run a blog about Stocking Waterman. So, yeah, sure, I'm going to defend this song. But contrary to popular opinion, I don't like everything Stocking Waterman did. I'm a big fan. There's some things I don't like that they've done. But 
I do have to stand up here and defend Band Aid 2. Yeah. Because one, I don't think it's anywhere as bad as people seem to make out. And two, I think it's a given that whatever you think of the original record, it's it's a legendary record. Mm. It had such an impact and that impact and that legacy can never be erased, no matter how many other versions there are of this record. And I think that's what gets me. It comes back to what we were saying about Nick Drake before, mm. is that, yes, the original is the greatest one, but just because there's a certain perception of the people involved in the second record, Band Aid 2, that doesn't mean it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be exiled from history, basically, I think, mm. what I'm trying to say. I think this is just a few things I like to make a point about, Tim, really, is that Band Aid 2 was actually done quite quickly. Band Aid 2 was conceived and recorded in a matter of days. I can't remember the actual schedule. I, I did write a separate blog post on Band Aid 2, which was quite, involved a bit of a timeline, and it's quite clear that the time Midjour and Bob Geldof had to plan invite people to take part in the record and do the recording was a much longer time scale mm. than was afforded to Stock Aitken Waterman. You know, and, and I think some of these things should be borne in mind. Yeah, sure, okay. Looking back from the distance of time, the lineup on the original Band-Aid record is probably more impressive than the lineup on the second one. But at the same time, if you look at some of the lineup on the first one, you know, you don't have to like it, but don't try and make out yeah. it never happened. Well, I mean, I will say, you know, I, I remember at the time, that was when, you know, that Christmas I was endlessly listening to Fool's Gold and What the World is Waiting For, the Manchester Rave on EP and so on. Monday too should have been my natural enemy, but I remember not minding it. I remember actually quite liking the fact that, don't they bring the chorus into it earlier on? I think Banana yeah. Armour sing it between the verses. I remember thinking that's quite clever, that. It sounded good on the radio. There was nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's that horrible snobbery people have got about 80s pop where anything before Live Aid yeah. is a classic pop classic and everything afterwards, oh, the charts have gone rubbish now. No, you just got old. Simple as that. I think it's greatest achievement, which, you know, this was what I hated at the time. It kept Jive Bunny up for number one. <laughs> but that would be the equivalent to stopping the X Factor now from getting yeah. to Christmas number one. Jive Bunny, I detested, but that Christmas single was one of the laziest records ever. It's absolutely dreadful, isn't it? And I'm glad you never hear it now because of somebody that was uh, featured on it, who's yeah. now persona non grata. But the first two records, I could at least say there was an art to cutting those old rock and roll records together. Let's party, it's Christmas. It's just you got Slade, Wizard, the man we don't mention, and March. <laughs> Fucking March of the Mods! But it's <laughs> dreadful. I'm like... I hated Jive Bunny. I hated that animation. There's a, there actually, there is a bit in the video for Swing the Mood where I actually want to kill a badly animated character because it annoys me so much. I think what's actually interesting, you're quite right, you don't hear Let's Party anymore. Um, yeah. But there is, there actually is a new edit of that track which mm. excises the person we're not going to mention. So it's even, a, even worse yeah, now. So, <laughs> so you get less of him and more of March of the Mods. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, I think, you know, I think coming back to Band-Aid 2, mm. I think, you know, I can understand why some people don't like it. And do I think it's a better record than the first one? Probably not. I'm not a big fan of the first one. I think the produ the production, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of Midjour. I'm a big fan of Ultravox. Midjour's a very talented musician and producer. But I find that original version... 
the arrangement very sparse. Mm. And even if you take into, into account the, the change in improvements in technology between 84 and 89, I do feel that the Socrates Waterman one has a fuller sound. I appreciate the, the criticism of people saying that the arrangement is too upbeat given the nature of the lyrics. But I think in some ways it acts as a counterpoint to, you know, it, it sort of emphasises those lyrics a bit. And I think, as you say, Tim, the fact that they incorporated, rather than the end chorus, they, they interspersed the chorus throughout the song to restructure it was effective. You know, again, it was rather than just redoing the song. And let's not forget, despite Stock and Aiken's reliance on, you know, keyboards and synthesizers, they were actually quite well practiced and talented musicians. Yeah. Mike Stock and Matt Aiken had two bands, actually. They had um, a covers band who do obviously corporate gigs around London, mm. and then they'd have an originals band playing in, in local pubs in London, and they were playing like six nights a week, and they were playing chic, uh, uh, you know, Beatles, whatever. So night after night, these guys got out there and were well-seasoned musicians. Mm. It would it would have been very easy for Stock and Aiken just to do an updated version yeah. of the of the of the arrangement individual. Of the original version, so in first them they try something different, not to everybody's taste, but at least they try something different with the arrangements and the structure of the song. And actually, the other main criticism of the track is this perceived quality of the contributors. You know, and there are one or two artists on there whose vocal performances aren't stellar, but at the same time, I'd say like you know the, the performances like from Marty Pello and the Pasadenas and even mm. Matt Goss. And this sounds like all good vocal performances. Yeah. You know, perhaps, you know, they're not held in the same esteem as Duran Duran and George Michael, and that's fair enough. But at the same time, what they were what they were trying to do at Geldof's sort of recommendation, they weren't making a record to to survive throughout history. They were making a record at that time that was a contemporary record that would raise money for a good cause. You know, and on that basis that worked out well. I think probably the one of the main legacies of, of the original Band Aid track is that arguably it was the first supergroup track. Mm. Okay, we've talked about supergroups before, you know, Emerson Lake Palmer, etc., and various prog, prog rock bands throughout the yeah. 70s. But this was the first time that you had such a large collection yeah. of really successful pop acts coming together to record one track. And I think. That's the real thing that really sells and cements Band Aid's legacy. Because mm. you could argue, if it was actually Midjor and Bob Geldof yeah. performing Do They Know It's Christmas, it wouldn't have the same cachet. So I think that's, that casts a long shadow over all the subsequent versions. Not just Band Aid mm. 2, but there's Band Aid 20, Band Aid 30, mm. Band Aid 37 and a half. <laughs> You know, and I think I'm not a massive fan of the thirty, uh, the twenty and thirty mm. one, but they did what they were supposed to do at the time. Yeah. If I did favour, I think whilst I think I understand why the original is the best version or the definitive version, I still prefer the Band Aid two. Well, I think I mean I've got a theory. One of the reasons people like to give it such a kicking is that you know, as you say, the original Band Aid was the first thing ever on that scale of that style there were so many copyists in the years that came after you know from the the, the things that i liked like united artists against apartheid quite like do you remember there was stars by here and aid the heavy metal yeah they're all them and they're all kinds of terrible massed choir things from let it be by fairy aid which is yeah it's listenable, but it's a mess, really. It's all over the place. And I know it was just not getting Waterman production, but it's, it doesn't hang together very well. 
all kinds of other just dreadful charity sing-alongs that you know some of them now because of you know the the sort of people they have to drag in off the streets to be on it now can't be shown when they repeat them on top of the pops that some dubious celebs came along for the ride on some of them so many bad records and then band-aid two sort of like bookends that it's like the yeah. other end of all these i i'm even hesitating to say that but bad records that sold well because of the cause that i doubt have been played anywhere since they were out but people you know you resent the fact that you have to tolerate something bad because it's in a good cause and so band-aid two is something that it because it's repeating something that's been done before it's easy to kick. I you can get so. away with it. I mean, let's not forget that the original Band-Aid, as you say, did inspire many things. Probably the worst crime it committed, far worse than Band-Aid 2, I would argue, <laughs> is that it inspired Doctor in Distress by Who Cares? <laughs> which was, for those of you who don't know, was a record produced by high-energy high producer Ian Levine to protest against the cancellation of Doctor <laughs> Who in 1985. So, you know, it, 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 it has you as our legacy. I think the main, my main takeaway from band-aid too is that i think for quite a long time it was kind of excised from history i think in more recent times it has had the odd play here and there like on pick of the pops um and you know one or two other things as well it was actually included on on the cd single of band-aid 30 was it with the other versions yeah. as well so there does seem to be first time on cd sorry it probably probably will, but i'm not yeah. sure if it was released on cd at the time so there is some kind of slight re-emergence of it, and I'm not asking for everybody to sort of do some kind of massive re-evaluation. I am. <laughs> anyway, I think all that. I think for me, it's just that kind of thing. Is you know, whatever people think of that record, good or bad, I don't think that justifies for it to be excised from history at all. I think that's absolutely true. And do you know, I was originally going to say, do you want to play out on When You Come Back to Me by Jason Donovan? But I'm not giving you the choice between that and Doctor in Distress. Can we pick Boris Gardner? <laughs> no, we're having Max out room and that's it. Stephen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you too. There's an old man on a sleigh who's like me for just one day when he bestrides the world like a huge colostomy. He gets no presents and no fun and he's forgotten when he's done. So here's a little gift, a song to him. From me. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, you are one lovely guy. Can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.